Body Health. Thanks for listening. Today we're talking with Dr. Scott Wustenberg about how to interpret a standard blood panel. So it's one of the most basic tests that everyone gets done with their GP somewhat regularly, um, but quite often, I mean, myself included, I find that there's a whole bunch of things on there that I don't know what the hell they mean. Uh, and it'd be nice to know exactly what they do mean, uh, even if it's just from a layman's point of view, so that I can take charge of my health uh, in a more proactive way and say, hey, look, what's this mean? What's that mean? Uh, and then make some, some better decisions about what to do with my health as far as moving forward. Um, so sit back, relax and enjoy. Um, we certainly go through a fair few things. Um, this is going to be a two-parter. So we got through about half of the, the all of the tests that show up on your standard blood panel. Um, so stay tuned for part two, which will come out next week. Uh, guys, as always, if you've got questions for me, uh, email eric at brainandbodyhealth.com.au or if you want to get in touch with Scotty, give him a call on 07-3371-0222. Enjoy. And we're off. Good afternoon, Scotty. Good afternoon, mate. Um, mate, I, I thank you ever so much from uh, picking me up at the uh, the sports car conference over the weekend. That is quite okay. Uh, and hanging out for a bit, talking lasers, <laughs> and then dropping me off at the airport. It saved me fifty bucks in taxi fare. Oh. and you you were a lot more fun to talk to um, <laughs> than uh, than the taxi driver that who. Uh, Picked me up and drove me to the conference. Oh. Uh, so much appreciated. You were most welcome. It was fun. I enjoyed myself. Uh, Yet again, saved the day. And it was uh, really good to uh, get that um, extra information and different points of view on a different laser and what it does. So I think that'll be really mm. quite useful. Well, I think my take home from um, chatting with uh, with a lady about uh, about the K laser was that. I've got to do a lot of mathematics and a lot of reading um, because no one's done it yet. Yeah. Um, but that's that's um, good good fun times being on the forefront. Well, like um, at this moment, shout out to anyone uh, listening out there who's great at <laughs> mathematics and physics. Eric needs your brain. Uh, it's going to be really helpful for you okay. as well. Uh, we've got to get this mathematics done to work out the, uh, the heating coefficients. Yeah. Nerds, nerds, you know. Yeah. Um, and just remember, if you're explaining maths problems to me, you have to use really like think explaining four year old. Uh, so that's that's kind of my level as far as mathematics goes. That's glorious. Um, but uh, I mean, we had a brief chat um, before hitting record. But um, I'm sure um, with your approach to health, as opposed to my slightly more biomechanical and neuro approach rather than metabolic, I get the shits when I need to send a patient off to get a blood panel done. Uh, and, uh, you know, well, personally, I'm terrible at reading them. Uh, and I, I need to know more about how to understand a blood panel. But also, um, I find that in general, um, GPs don't explain what each of the different things means. And while they may be focusing in on on saying, hey, look, your, your anemia is uh, not too bad or your anemia is, is, is pretty low, um, they're not telling you about what all the other figures mean, which may be, um, you know, something else that you have, have been worrying about from a health point of view, um, but you didn't necessarily go to the GP for that particular problem. And so they're not really discussing with you and saying, oh, hey, look, your uh, your white blood cells are a little bit off. Maybe that's got to do with, have you noticed anything with blah, blah, blah. Um, so I think uh, as much as we can, we should empower and educate uh, the client base um, on all things medical as it pertains to the health so that they can make better decisions. Uh, so from that point, 
Scotty, take it away. Uh, well, reading a blood panel 101. Well, absolutely. Um, so, obviously, patients are going to go in to see their, their health practitioner. Uh, they'll run some basic bloods. They might come in saying, well, I've been feeling really tired. I'm struggling to, to lose weight. I'm finding it difficult to get motivated. I'm, I'm eating really well, but I still can't get the weight off. Uh, my, my skin's drying out. And all of these things uh, have some metabolic consequence, obviously, uh, in the background. Um, and, and the benefit of it is that um, if you know what you're looking for, you can actually figure out uh, what nutritional factors uh, are hiding in the background. There might actually be some protein deficiencies. Mm. There might actually be uh, you know, a lack of B12 or, or some other factor that's actually really important for uh, the patient's health and well-being. But actually appears fundamentally normal uh, within the um, the standard blood test. But, you know, as we spoke about previously with anemia, being kind of just inside the normal range may not actually be good enough for the for the patient's health mm. and well-being. And so when I'm... Well, cor- correct me if I'm wrong, but with those ranges, it's essentially... Uh, hey, this is a pathological condition at this end, this is a pathological condition at that end, but there's going to be a spectrum. Like you, you don't just all of a sudden go, oh, hey, anemia. Like it takes a while to get that, there. That's exactly so, it. Like, so, yeah, you, you, uh, you want to be optimized. <laughs> Surprisingly enough. Um, yeah, so when we, we look at uh, what's called an ELFT or electrolyte and liver function test, there's some basic uh, factors on it. And the first things that you'll get to see is you'll see... So what, what are the, uh, the letters associated with that on the blood panel? Because everything gets um, shortened into... Yep. into Various letters. So, what what specific letters are we looking at with that one? So, an E slash LFT is an electrolyte and liver function test. Now, this particular panel has sodium, potassium, calcium, phosphorus, uh, uric acid, urea, creatinine, glucose, uh, the liver enzymes, uh, bilirubin. Uh, and a couple of others, cholesterol's on there, uh, and sometimes a basic iron is on there as well. Mm. Now, at that moment in time, uh, the the numbers come in with a certain range, and just being within the range isn't necessarily useful. If we start thinking about, say, sodium, potassium, calcium, magnesium, these are the basic electrolytes that are essential for firing a nerve. So. If they're too high or too low in relationship to one another, we might actually be struggling to get the the neuron to actually fire or it may become hyperactive. It may start to swell and therefore it's actually really prone to transneuronal degeneration because uh, the amount of sodium in the cell is actually uh, far too significant. Um, Mm. What do you typically see as some of the causes for that to get skewed on a blood panel? Um, Um, So, or or do, do you get ratios where sodium goes way too high, potassium too low, or do they all generically go low? What, what, uh, it d- depends literally on what's wrong with the person. Sometimes there's some epigenetics in the background. So some people mm. are actually salt retainers. So their standard diet may actually cause them to actually get uh, a fairly high load of uh, sodium in the bloodstream. Uh, further mm. to that, if they are high stress, mesencephalic activated, they're going to be retaining uh, or have too much cortisol. And cortisol 
alcohol activates the kidneys to actually retain sodium because people under stress need to keep their blood pressure up so they've got the amount of force in the vessel to drive them when they're running away from the tiger, so to speak. So, mm. uh, yeah, that, that's kind of one of the most common reasons. Obviously, the most obvious one nowadays is that we have this wonderful thing called food technology. And food technology uh, allows the manufacturers of food to design their products, say, like a pack of crisps, to have the, the highest concentration of acceptable salt, fat, carbohydrate, or sugar in the product in a packaging that is kind of triggering your brain like crack cocaine does almost. So really easily- I can attest to that. Yeah, yes. really consumable. Uh, it kind of hits all your, your satiation spots. You can keep eating a bunch of it way past your actual needs. And of course, this say you're doing that relatively regularly, uh, it's just a pack here, pack there, kind of two or three times a week. You could be pushing up your sodium level way past what you need now that would be fine if you were kind of reasonably calm and just peeing it out and not retaining it it would also be fine if you were eating a high potassium diet at the same time like a whole bunch of green leafy vegetables now mm. most of the time people kind of hear the terms fruit and vegetable and they go well i'm eating fruit because fruit's mm. full of what sugar so, of course, we don't necessarily eat the vegetables because they're bitter and sour, and who likes those things as much? Now, some people will turn around and go, yeah, but I do, and I'm great, please keep doing it. But most people are more inclined to eat sugar-based or salt-based food mm. because we've got too much stress in our life. Uh, well, no, I eat plenty of vegetables, uh, hot it, chips all the time. That's, that's a potato, that's, that's good for you, isn't it? It is absolutely excellent for you, and you are right, it is, is a vegetable by strictest definition, but I tend to look at it uh, somewhat more as if it's uh, a starch at that particular second in time, uh, because fundamentally that's what it is. And while it does have a lot of great nutrients, most of those are in the, the actual jacket, the skin of it, and most of us kind of chop that part off because it kind of looks a bit ugly, and so we don't really get a whole lot of that stuff going on. Mm. So, like, when we look at the, uh, the, the blood test, the ELFT, we'll look at um, the ratio of sodium to potassium. And the optimal range or the optimum range of that ratio is 28 to 34. So, obviously, low ratio, so low sodium to potassium, we might have possible sodium insufficiency and we might need to be increasing the amount of salt in someone's diet. They could be peeing it out too quickly. They might have, mm. like, damaged kidneys. And obviously, mm. from a high ratio, too much sodium to potassium, so it's above 34, uh, the patient's probably not consuming enough uh, green leafy vegetables. They could be on Lasix. They could be on um, mm. antihypertensive blood pressure medication, which is going to cause us a bunch of problems. If uh, So with something like adrenal fatigue... Mm -hmm. Um, would that have an impact? I'd imagine adrenal fatigue, your kidney function is going to start to, to misbehave as well. Well, um, hit. Is that, is that sort of early stage adrenal fatigue, the potassium, sodium, are they going to be high, but then end stage, the kidneys shut down, it's going to go low? Uh, quite possibly. So uh, in the first instance, I don't truly believe a lot in adrenal fatigue in the first place. So that's going to come out of... Um, Controversial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But... It's unlike you, uh, Unlike me. Um, adrenal fatigue is, is commonly looked at as a body issue. You know, the adrenal glands are tired out. But 
most of the time adrenal fatigue is much more to do with uh, that neurological state, the state of stress, the mm-hmm. mesencephalic hyperactivation, and the drivers coming from the brain, the hypothalamus and pituitary. So it's, it's those things that are going to be driving because the way adrenaline, so to speak, and, and uh, that stress response in the body is you get a shock, you get a, a, a shot of adrenaline, noradrenaline, kind of pulsing through the body that's actually coming through the nervous system that's not coming from the actual uh, organ Mm. on top of the kidneys so we're really more talking about what's happening with the brain and you can't easily treat uh, the kidneys back into uh, balance you have to treat the brain back into balance in my opinion and so most of the herbs Mm. that we actually use that are called adaptogenic herbs rhodiola uh, you know ginsengs etc are actually very uh, brain interactive and they're very loving for the, the central nervous system at that particular point in time equally as much as they have effect on the adrenal glands but to, to answer the question, what we're talking about is that the um, the sodium will get retained as that, that first, second odd stage of stress occurs. So you're going to be squirting cortisol in and you're going to be raising up your blood sugar and this is going to hit the kidney and the kidney will do what it's designed to do and start retaining the sodium, which is going to cause uh, increases in blood pressure. And on a blood test, this will be uh, one of the first indicators. We'll start seeing that indication of uh, the high sodium to potassium ratio. Now, what then occurs is that you keep doing that for long enough. You're going to get a driver of your blood pressure. And the longer you keep doing that, those... um, capillary networks in the kidneys are actually really, really sensitive because they're only one cell layer thick. And so you keep pushing that pressure, you basically explode them, you get more sodium retention in the filtration, you start to explode it and damage it, and then you start to leak, and then everything starts coming out in the urine. So as you were saying, in the early stages, yeah, we'll see the retention. In the later stages, everything starts to leak. Mm. That's a, yeah, well... I certainly know from explaining to someone who's saying, oh, adrenal fatigue, and they go, oh, yeah, I've read about that. It's, it's a much easier soundbite than saying, so you're mesencephalically dominant <laughs> because your frontal lobes have become fatigued and they're no longer gating your mesencephalic cord. It, uh, it, it becomes a... Uh, anyway, but yeah, yeah, yeah I, I totally get I you. I love it. It's, it's not just your adrenals. No. There's a bit more to Well, no one, uh-huh. no one really gets better by trying to treat the adrenals. They stay on it and they say, oh, yeah, I've got adrenal fatigue. I'm taking these herbs. Well, how long have you been taking? Oh, about five years now. Yeah. Okay. That, <laughs> that's working well for you. Um, In that case, she ain't working. Yeah, no. And, and people don't cool. appreciate it because they do feel better. But they're feeling better because we're adapting them and we're supporting them, but we're probably not looking enough at those other factors, uh, what's happening in their lifestyle external to the the gland itself. Hitting one piece of a thousand piece puzzle really well. Yeah, that's it. Um, So next one that we tend to look at is the the calcium phosphorus ratio. And again, uh, what we're looking for is an optimum ratio between uh, 2.2, 2.4. The range itself is 2 to 2.5. So it's a really narrow range. And Mm. so obviously hit the sweet spot of 2.3. So I'll commonly have a patient come in with a calcium to phosphorus ratio of like 1.7. So they are, you know... 200% 200% of the range away from 
the sweet spot that mm. you're actually aiming for. So having having a low number uh, at that moment in time is actually potentially catastrophic. So if you think about what calcium does, everyone kind of goes calcium bones. So what what mm. you really need to be thinking about is that all of your your brain nerves are on rails that are made of calcium architecture. So to fire a neuron in your brain requires calcium. So the mm. the glutamate. Uh, you know, activation requires an influx of calcium into the cell to get excitable. So if you don't have enough calcium in your system, your brain is going to be flat as. One thing I found really interesting from uh, last week's podcast when we were looking at anemia um, was that for essentially every molecule of iron in our blood, we got 5 million of the suckers running around the rest of our tissues because, hey, Iron's kind of important. Is there a, a, a crossover with that with um, so when we're doing blood tests for calcium and phosphorus, and we're saying, "Oh, this is the calcium that's floating around our blood," uh, is that a true indicator of um, the calcium that we've got available for nervous system function? Because you know we're not um, we're not sucking nerves out the syringe. Not really, and that that's the real problem. Calcium's massively important, but. Part of our, our issue seems to be not so much with the calcium because we tend to retain it and because we've developed a really good storage, which is your bones. If you've got not enough calcium coming in in your diet, you start liberating them. Hmm. And because yeah. we've got the uh, the parathyroid glands, which if we have parathyroid hormone and vitamin D going on, we start kind of altering the amount of available uh, calcium so it never really gets too out of balance until something's really out of balance and then we've got a real problem yeah and of course you know if parathyroid's too high then you're going to have a real flattening of your thyroid gland as well and so you'll be Mm. having signs of like muscle splinting and soreness in the muscles and joints and really low energy and possibly putting on weight and loss of the outer third of your eyebrow potentially and snake skin um is it parathyroid? Is that on a standard blood panel? Uh, it's not on a standard blood panel, but like if we started to see some real abnormalities of this calcium phosphorus ratio, and we were suspicious of of the TSH etc. being off, um, we might want to, to look at it because uh, the thyroid parathyroid are on a seesaw to one another. One goes up, the other generally goes down, and and mm-hmm. vice versa. Uh, do you get, ever get that seesaw being broken? Um, occasionally, but usually that sort of stuff has some fairly serious endocrine consequences. Uh, there might be mm. like a tumor somewhere going on uh, or mm. they've had certain drugs uh, to, to challenge something else and that started to cause... Uh, in- artificially skew the... Correct. Yep, gotcha. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Um, and, uh, okay, run me through the... What's next? On okay, so from there, uh, we've we've got um, some factors. The, the optimum range we're aiming for is that sweet spot of two point three. Now, if mm. uh, the the phosphorus is greater than one, and that ratio is less than two point two, we've got a lack of calcium at that moment in time, and I think that kind of stands for itself. And again, you know, mm. you, you're above two point four in that ratio, and the calcium's. Um, kind of higher you've got less than one for the phosphorus you've got a lack of phosphorus and then you know if your calcium is below 2.3 and your phosphorus is below one 
obviously you've got a problem with both and that's when we know that there's some significant issues. That person we're probably gonna be a bit more worried about what their bone structure is doing because uh, all of those things are essential in the bone shaft itself. Now phosphorus is also essential for energy production. If you think about the energy mm. currency, ATP, the three Ps are the mm. phosphorus groups. So, kind of important. Yeah. So, if you've got too much of that building up, there's a likelihood that we might not be recycling our phosphorus to make energy very effectively. So, gotcha. it's fairly ubiquitous. So, phosphorus is, is absolutely in everything. You eat anything, it's got phosphorus in it. So, it's commonly quite hard to get low in phosphorus. It's much easier to get low in calcium. And that raises the issues that if you're seeing a drop in phosphorus, something weird is happening in this person. You've got to be a bit more uh, hands-on. Yeah, interesting. Okay. okay. So you watch out for that low phosphorus. Yeah, absolutely. So the next thing that I'm going to look at is the urea to creatinine ratio. Now, that ratio is optimum between 70 to 90. And again, if the uh, the ratio is comes out below 70, uh, we've got a dietary protein deprivation. If it's above 90, we've got an excess tissue protein breakdown. Um, and so mm. it, it measures ultimately... Uh, kind of tissue bulk, uh, the amount that you're actually kind of consuming. If, if the number's wrong, you may not actually be putting enough in. If it's, as I said, above the 90, you might have some degree of damage from overtraining, an autoimmune condition, uh, some form of damage, like, you know, as again, everything comes back to cancer. If you're seeing this weird and wonderful and we're breaking stuff down far too quickly, unfortunately, we need to kind of think cancer at some particular point in time. Um, but... Mm. Uh, it, it's a particularly important one to be thinking about at that moment in time. And so the next one we then kind of look at. Just, yep. to, just to stick on that one quickly, how quickly would that level shift? So if you were to say you have a um, bodybuilder yep. um, who's had a week off and you took their bloods and then they've gone back into training and had a week of just belting the crap out of their muscles. Uh, would that level cycle relatively quickly or does it take a while to fluctuate? Uh, no, it takes a while. These these are things that I generally wouldn't do um, like with a week turnaround. I tend to look at these things one month to three months apart in most of, of my patients. But most most okay. of the patients... So it's not going to get skewed by the what's happened that not week? Not usually. So what we'd look for in those instances is if we were, uh, were thinking that they were getting some real breakdown, we'd be looking at things like um, creatine kinase, uh, which is one mm. of the things that um, some of the people may have heard of rhabdomyolysis. Um, mm. you know, rhabdo the clown comes along and it, it it hits some of the bodybuilders and crossfitters, etc., and they start losing their muscle for uh, who knows what reason. Can occur in um, uh, deep sea divers from situations of the bends and uh, a few other conditions. Um, so, if we were seeing a very sudden change like that, we'd be kind of looking for a bit more big picture uh, breakdown of the tissue because that stuff also is autoimmune conditions breaking it down at that moment. So. Yeah, the, these mm. these are much more generally things that I'm looking for for a chronic degree of unwellness. Therefore, they take actually quite a while to change. Like, you know, if you had a meal 
and then kind of two hours later took the blood test, we might see a shift because the protein available right at that second in time is going to be mm. um, skewing it. But see, these tests are done generally fasting. So we're we're trying to keep this as as bog standard as you can. Um, And if not, then you actually list that it's a non-fasting. And so we try and take into account. account. Yeah. So from there, what we do is we look at a thing called um, the, the... protein metabolic index now this is a measure of your anabolic to catabolic activity and it we take um Mm. fundamentally the the uric acid uh which or or urate and we compare it to the amount of albumin in the actual uh, bloodstream and the actual equation is uh creatinine times albumin divided by uh, the urea times urate and so this gives us an overall level of how much can you build versus how much can you break down and again Mm. what we're looking for is to be a pmi of 2.5 to 3.5 and preferably with an albumin level of 42 and above so 43 is kind of the sweet spot that I'm aiming for and you know generally speaking in most instances we'd like a a higher album level because it means that you've got more available protein it can carry hormones around the system it's a marker of repair Mm. etc but occasionally that number will have been going along fine it's been kind of low and then suddenly it spikes Now, again, at that moment, it can be a sign of acute crisis in the system. You're desperately trying to throw every kind of pot and pan in the kitchen at the problem Mm. to try and stop the breakdown of the body. Again, infection, autoimmune conditions, chronic disease like cancer, that's really starting to ramp up at that moment in time. So again, PMI 2.5 to 3.5 with uh, an albumin of 42 and above. We're looking at normal balance of synthesis versus breakdown. Um, Having a high PMI and uh, like above 3.5 with a high... um, albumin means poor protein intake normal synthesis so the person's not actually eating enough thus it as Mm. you're probably kind of gathering everything's got a sweet spot just being too high or too low doesn't really answer the question it's where on your continuum are you uh you know below 2.5 with an albumin less than 42 you've got excess tissue protein breakdown and impaired synthesis which is probably i think um the worst place to be on on the chart and i find it really quite commonly uh and and just a so same question um uh, for the PMI, uh, for as for the previous ones, how quickly would you see a turnaround? So my question would then be, if someone's, uh, you know, I'm about to do a, an eight week challenge with the local gym to try and try and get six packs. I'm already, yeah. and um, fingers crossed. But if someone were to go into like a fasted state, um, is, is that going to spike it quickly, or if would you need no. sort of several weeks of low caloric intake before that's going to start to show? Yeah, it takes weeks. It takes weeks to fix this. It takes months, in fact, to fix this. So when I see really bad mm. PMIs, uh, I talk to my patients about you know this could take one to two years to actually get right, and so wow. no one no one really likes hearing that. But you got to set them a truthful um, kind of capacity to to change because again you're always sort of managing that's like your bulimias and uh, eating disorders for sure. Well, absolutely those. But this is the normal people who are walking in off your street going, oh, my back's a bit sore. 
Yeah, okay, right. Yeah, so people don't appreciate how low their protein levels are because they forget that everything is made of protein. Your bone shafts are made of protein. All your muscles are made of protein. Now, keep in mind, mm-hmm. the less muscle mass you have and the less tone in your muscle, the less brain you have. So your, your muscle is a proprioceptive end organ that actually makes hormones. Those things drive the connection of the network of your brain. So without your muscles, if your muscles are going, your brain is going and you're in deep trouble. But I was pretty happy to read a, a case uh, or what's the case? There were research data that they were showing that um, it was more squats and lifting weights that prevented dementia and long-term brain degeneration rather than cardio. Mm. And I immediately took that as my permission or yet again, another source of permission to never do cardio again. <laughs> so I thought, oh, that's, that's, as a piece of cardio is just bad for my brain. It's, uh, it's, it's guys, um, I can't run that far. Sorry. No, um, um, I, I think, I think you might be perhaps misinterpreting the data just a little bit there. Oh, and that's what we've, we've got time for today. I'd like to see you next week. <laughs> <laughs> I shut that down real quick. <laughs> nice. Okay. We'll leave that one yeah. alone. Um, yeah. Fingers in my ears and la la la. Um, okay, mate. So from the BMI, what do we want? To okay, look at? so the next one that we'll look at on that one is we'll look at the bilirubin, and so there's there's total mm. and conjugated, and some some will look at uh, like. In, in Queensland, uh, we tend to just run uh, a, a total. Uh, other parts of the country will run both uh, total and conjugated. Overall, what we're looking for is things like Gilbert syndrome, which is a genetic uh, inadequacy of the ability to glucuronidate uh, things. Now, people will probably go, well, I've got no idea what you just said. Now, yeah, glucuronidate. Yeah, glucuronidate or glucuronic acid is a, uh, a chemical that the body uses in the liver or, and in several other detox pathways to actually remove certain chemicals out of the body. So glucuronidation mm. is one of the four major detox pathways of the body. Methylation, gotcha. glycination, glutathionation, and glucuronidation. So low levels of glucuronic acid or low, inappropriately uh, high bilirubin at that moment in time indicates that your ability to glucuronidate and therefore detoxify these chemicals is uh, not working for you and you're probably building up with garbage. Now, that's, that's the genetic component of it. Now, these people, you'll see them because they'll be consuming, you know, excessive carbohydrates. And I've got one particular patient of mine where I'm thinking about this one who happened to be high stress, was in a, a role uh, that, that, you know, work-wise uh, had a working night shifts in terrible, difficult conditions. Um, and lots of stress, uh, you know, picking people up who are in a lot of trouble. And uh, again, you kind of get addicted to, to cola drinks and you're sitting there in your waiting time eating candy, so to speak. Now that, you know, she'll walk in the door for me and she's got these bright yellow eyeballs and people mm. will have kind of gone automatically, oh, well, that's, that's liver, that's hepatic, which is true, but it's a very specific thing because of the Gilbert syndrome. So mo- most people who eat far too much candy and um, 
carbs and sugars, etc., will probably kind of get fat and become diabetic. Whereas uh, in, in these these people with Gilbert syndrome, they have this much fancier yellow eyeball, sallow-looking skin. They look unwell. They don't feel the best, but they're still going. And so with that, the, the, the factors that we're, we're kind of understanding from this, we see this high total and normal conjugated bilirubin and we'll go, right, okay. So they're probably lacking the cofactors that help for that. So guess which one's mm. top of the pops there? Hit me with it. Starts with I, rhymes with Ron. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, my good old friend. Yep. Okay. But also gotcha. vitamin B3, B6, magnesium, and glutamine. So uh, these mm. are the cofactors that we might put into them. Now, interestingly, in a, in a true genetic Gilbert syndrome rather than an overloaded situation, mm. they also might be lacking in carbohydrate reserves. So they've been fasting for a long period of time or because of the excess of consumption and they've become insulin resistant at that moment in time. Just to jump in at that point, um, so in my experience, inevitably the body's got a seesaw mechanism where like parasympathetic goes up, sympathetic goes down, um, parathyroid goes up, thyroid goes down. Um, if we're sort of, um, and you mentioned before that the, hit me with that start where it's like glucuronidation. Yeah, that one, glucuronidation. Um, seeing as that's one of the four big detox pathways, is there a similar seesaw that goes on with that where if we're not driving our glutathione pathway or one of the other ones for detox, does that then overload the glucuronidation or vice versa? That's exactly it. So in this instance, cool. uh, we'd be looking at an overload of the sulfonation and glycination conjugation pathways. So hmm. when... And how, how would we know if that were a... Um, overload because of a lack of cofactors or an overload because the other pathways are shut down? Well, that's that's exactly the, the great question. So there's actually a... Oh, thank a you. st- you're welcome. There's a separate test that we can actually run um, called a liver detox test. And basically, uh, it's a functional test, unlike the liver test that we'll talk about in a moment, um, we, we give the patient uh, a series of chemicals such as caffeine, which drives the phase one detoxification pathways. We give them paracetamol, uh, aspirin, and we measure their outputs. And so each thing that we give them actually affects the different parts of the the liver detoxification pathways. And so by measuring, oh, well, you've got a stack of, you know, conjugated glycine end products uh, and you don't really have much in the way of um, xenoestrogen end products, which might be the the glucuronic acid pathway. Uh, Well, this shows where we've got the imbalance. You're using far too much of this one and far too little of that one. Now, other people will argue that it's not particularly accurate because all it really is measuring is the ability to detoxify caffeine or paracetamol or Mm. aspirin, which is true. I think that's very valid. But uh, you know, we have to try and, and, and make some assumptions somewhere along the way. Otherwise, the patient's going to turn into a blob and not do very well anyway. So it's as close to a, a functional test of how that, that pathway is working anyway. Now, further to mm, that, I would also have run the, uh, the DNA testing for the epigenetics and would look at their cytochrome functions, their COMPT functions, and look at how do I make those things work better if I find any issues with them. And there are supplements 
specifically to help make those uh, enzymatic pathways operate more effectively. So hopefully we don't have too many problems with the actual detox mechanism. We just need to make sure that their cofactors are available to help. Now, Beautiful. that leads on to, because one of the, the supplements that we'd use is actually a, a very specific extract of uh, broccoli seed uh, called mm. sulforaphane. And so one of my faves. further to that, the, uh, the um, bilirubin and Gilbert syndrome is also affected by an inadequate cruciferous vegetable intake. So if you don't actually have enough sulfur residue, because that's what the cruciferous vegetables really give us. Um, so mm. cruciferous vegetables, for anyone who hasn't heard that word, is your cabbage, collie, broccoli, bok choy, uh, wombok, all the uh, Chinese cabbage sort of vegetables, Kale. Um, now, kale's got some caveats. Don't want it. Have to add in my personal favorite Brussels, Brussels sprouts. sprouts. Absolutely. Kale is a really good goitrogen, meaning it'll slow the thyroid down when you eat it raw, especially if you're eating it too much. So huh. everyone's been on this big green drink kick and going, you know, oh, I've been blending my raw kale up the wazoo and I've got 12 kilos of the stuff in this small pot. Aren't I doing well? I'm done. That is Excellent. Yeah. Doing your green smoothie and that shutting down your thyroid and you're getting fat trying to get Boom. thin. That's exactly it. So I have this wonderful green drink that's absolutely full of mint, which is really good for the brain. It's called a mojito. <laughs> you can have you can have that one in the morning. It's my green drink versus your green drink. See which one makes our mood happier. <laughs> 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 Maybe not. No, no, that, don't that. don't we'll don't anyone take me seriously. That, that was that was. No, that was that's all we got time for. Yeah. Thank you, ladies. Yeah, good. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, cruciferous what, uh... cruciferous vegetables are really the bomb. But you've got to be careful about how you prepare some of them because uh, they're, they're not always as magical as we're being told to to think about. Now, I meant to mention also previously mm. when we were talking about the albumin. If your albumin is too low, like it's getting below thirty-five, this signifies severe protein deprivation and so some of the reasons mm. could be that you're, you've got an actually impaired synthesis that may mean that you don't have enough actual hormone in your system testosterone DHEA uh, to, to drive their production potentially you may also have too much cortisol because you're under too much stress and that's why it's breaking down but again mm. lack of cofactors such as B6 and zinc can cause these problems or cytokines can actually induce metabolic derangement and actually the inflammation mm. is driving us off track and damaging the protein at that moment in time. Mm. So. so if that um, if that were the case, um, what's the um, generic yeah, influence? that CRP on the blood test that will um, show you what your, your average inflammatory levels that's, are? That's exactly it. So ESR and, and mm. CRP, and actually preferably what's called a high sensitivity or capital H little s CRP is the actual test that mm. we're actually after. So C-reactive protein is the CRP, and this is a standard uh, systemic uh, inflammatory level. So it's not specific for anything, but it is commonly run if we're suspicious that you've had a heart attack. If you've had a heart attack, it will be through the roof because you're, you're mm. breaking down like nobody's business. Now, um, the standard level for a, a CRP is between kind of zero and five. Anything above five is considered inflammatory. Now, an, a high sensitivity CRP, basically one and below is normal. Anything above that's no good. So 
realistically, mm. you don't want a lot of um, inflammation going on in your system. Uh, ESR no. or erythrocyte sedimentation rate is again a non-specific uh, measure of inflammation going on in your body. So this is basically they take a tube of your blood and they, they spin it and uh, it goes around in the centrifuge and the more inflammation uh, you have in your system, uh, the more fragile your blood cells are and they go splodge and they pack down into the bottom of the cell, uh, into the tube rather, but they, uh, is that how they, yeah, they, okay. they kind of, instead of being packed red blood cells, which will be really kind of nice and clumped together at the bottom with lots of kind of straw-like liquid above, it's going to be kind of, because they shatter open and all the goodies inside come out, it's a, a cloudy mess. And they measure this in millimeters. So what, what's interesting is that in some labs, uh, they'll, they'll measure and say that, you know, 15 is the cutoff. So anything above mm. 15 millimeters, that's inflammation. In other labs, or because of your age, they'll say 30 is the cutoff. And so me, mm. I, I tend to go with, well, we really don't want inflammation in there because I think this is, this is yeah, that, partially it? to do with where you are. So if you were in an area mm. that has perhaps, you know, poorer socioeconomic um, standards, uh, poorer eating conditions, uh, or maybe there's a greater amount of, of elderly people, uh, there might be an expectation uh, that there's going to be, um, you know, a lot more inflammation in your patients. So the labs all measure based upon their own parameters for the surrounding areas that they tend to run them for. And I thought so with a, with a test like that if we're looking at um, so if we wanted to do it to uh, take general health um, you know advice based on something like that if, if like you were on a, um, a reasonably crappy diet weren't doing too much exercise you got your maccas once or twice a fortnight sort of thing um, versus you know I go out and get on the piss every weekend um, versus um, I just had a heart attack or I've had a massive concussion or something like that so how much will like if someone's sort of like reasonably healthy from an alcohol consumption but diet's not great versus someone with an autoimmune condition that's actively irritating things like where are you going to fall on the spectrum with with those two types of oh, patients? okay so that one's really difficult because in the background we also have their their actual epigenetics and some people are really pro-inflammatory mm, yeah. pro and some people are really anti-inflammatory at that moment in time but you're going to see in an autoimmune condition or or a concussion uh something like 25, 30, 40, etc. So it'll go up quite uh, significantly at that moment in time. Um, however, you know, in someone who's uh, been on the piss fairly solidly and then goes in and get their blood test run the next day, it may only be 25. Or in someone who's very pro-inflammatory at that moment in time, it actually may have shot up quite a bit. But, you know, it, it's realistically something that because it's a, a, a systemic non-specific measure it's actually really very much down to the the person and i've had people who are, you can see the inflammation in them you could see the redness and the mm. swelling yet they're still pulling a normal esr at that moment in time and so you sit there and you go uh, well your body's kind of doing something right i don't really because that doesn't match that but i, I think realistically uh, as a society, medically, we need uh, a better series of inflammatory panels that are actually open to us all. Um, 
to, mm. to be able to make better informed decisions, I think. So short of um, new and fancier and better inflammatory lab tests happening, we'd be needing to correlate a standard blood panel with your epigenetic test. Yeah, I find that a really good way. And obviously, uh, looking at uh, people's behaviours, if you know that they're smoking kind of half a pack of cigarettes a day, they're getting on uh, the the juice each weekend, they're eating kind of semi-poorly, the likelihood of them having a low-grade inflammatory condition is really very high, Uh, especially, you know... uh, our Western diet is known to actually drive inflammation full stop. So if the person's eating a standard Western diet, you know, the, the uh, potato, maybe some peas or beans, steak and, and a lot of wheat going on with it, you know, and there's a bunch of people out there and lots of people consider that normal. But as it turns out, for long-term health and well-being, the greatest proponents of uh, health in a diet has consistently proven to be around either the Mediterranean diet or a traditional Japanese diet because it's got much higher varieties of micronutrients from many different sources. So the more more mm. micronutrient sources you get into you, the better. I think the, the traditional Japanese diet's about 27 and the traditional Mediterranean diet's got over 50 different micronutrient sources in a daily diet because of all the spices and the herbs and different varieties of food going into it. Now, obviously, we're not all going to be able to achieve that every day, but the goal is much more around trying to get past meat and three veggies and get wider and varied, not going, oh, well, I love kale, so I'm going to eat kale, or I love Brussels sprouts, so I'm going to eat them. It's going, okay, well, today we had some kale, tomorrow some Brussels sprouts, the next day we're going to add some spinach and wombuck, and maybe we'll have some coleslaw for breakfast as well. And it's trying to get these things in in multiple different ways and different sources every day, preferably, like my goal for my patients is to get them eating vegetable matter three meals a day. And people look at me and go, for breakfast? And I'm like, yeah, for breakfast. That stuff's really good for you. You should do that. Yeah, why not? Well, mate, this is a uh, a long and detailed and fascinating uh, podcast. I reckon we're going to have to make this a two-parter. Cool. Um, I've, I've just been given my two-minute warning. <laughs> um, but, uh, um, well, next. Yeah, mate, I think, I think we need to. What, what's the next thing the on the list? The next thing where we're going to go into next will be alkaline phosphatase and the liver enzymes. And then we'll probably have a look at kind of some of the blood sugar uh, testing and, and some of the indicators towards diabetic risk, um, reactive hypoglycemia. Etc. And I think those are really important because we're going to see an awful lot of them and people need to know what their risk factors for both some of their physical signs as well as um, the blood measurement signs. Mate, that's going to be huge. Awesome. Looking forward to it. Looking forward to it. Uh, all right, Scotty. Thank you. It's for been today. a great privilege. You're genius. <laughs> thank you. You have a great day. Dr. Scott, saving the day yet again. All right, guys, I learned a lot. I hope you did too. Uh, And now next time you get a standard blood test, we can start to make better choices about what's going on with our health or know how to read it uh, so they can see exactly what's going on. Uh, Any questions, eric at brainandbodyhealth.com.au or if you want to talk to Scotty, 0733710222 or you can get him at neo, N-E-O, at optimallife.com.au. All right, guys, stay tuned for next week when we go through part two of how to read blood tests.